Hello everyone, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast. Welcome to the beginning of the end of the world. So, last year in March, I wrote an essay on New Discourses. It was actually one of the earlier essays I wrote where I had visited the National Archive and I had had seen the way that they have things organized, and I was struck with this idea that there were two American stories. And I think this essay basically dives into the idea of of the the two American stories, and that we have to be able to tell the true American story, which, in some sense, you could say it starts with the colonies, but in some sense, really starts with the the opening section, opening paragraph of the Declaration of Independence from July of 1776. And that sort of sets a national mythology, and it set in motion a chain of events that led to eventually the abolition of slavery, eventually the Civil Rights Acts, and the uh, end of segregation, and the end of Jim Crow, and the almost the end of racism. I don't think that you can drive racism all the way out of people uh, in their hearts, but Functionally speaking, it really, really has been reduced or had been reduced. I think it's on an upswing for a reason. And I was comparing in the essay against the critical race theory uh, narrative about America, which posits instead that America was created in uh, as a slaveocracy in 1619 and that slavery and its maintenance were the, was the main reason for this, uh, the, the Revolutionary War in the 1770s. And the, this presents two very different visions. And the critical race theory story of America is one of racism and then more racism and then more racism. And in fact, the, the story in critical race theory begins from the first assumption that it has, which is that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, not an aberration from them. And then the second assumption of critical race theory is that uh, it's called interest convergence. It's that uh, white people specifically only help minority races, but especially black people when it's in their own self-interest to do so. And therefore, racism doesn't actually go away. It just reinvents itself in a more hidden and insidious form. And in particular, that there is... Uh, built into this set of assumptions is this idea that the people who benefit from racism have absolutely no motivation whatsoever to try to get rid of it. And so racism remains a constant. People who are uh, in the position to benefit from racism in exactly the same way as the slave owners did have no motivation. They don't even have the capacity to understand why they should have the motivation according to critical race theory. And I've argued since, I've got a much clearer understanding of what's going on with this. I've argued since that this is a complete misunderstanding of what's going on. I argued at the time that it's a complete misunderstanding of what's going on. And I said back in March of 2020 that we needed to start asserting the true American story and finding pride in that and spreading that pride and leaning into stories. I've since talked about the importance of stories. Uh, I had a kind of complicated podcast that I don't think, I think it's still kind of half-baked where I was talking about the next chapter of the American story where we have to understand that human beings think in stories. Well, today we're going to talk about what's going on in the world today right after this weird event at the Capitol and the 
absolutely hyperbolic response that we've seen to the event at the Capitol, which continues and I think has shaken, I hope, I know all of these things at the same time has shaken a lot of people up and freaked them out and made them realize something tyrannical this way comes and something bad is afoot. And so I want to articulate, in fact, we're going to dive into some postmodernism. We might dive into some critical theory. Um, but I want to articulate that what we have been witnessing over the last several years from the left, and maybe this last several goes back to the 60s, but certainly over the last four or five since Trump rose on the scene and critical race theory in his shadow mainstreamed big time, is the creation of a new national mythology, what the postmodernists would call a American meta-narrative. And we've asserted, Helen and I wrote in Cynical Theories, that the woke have their own meta-narrative or set of meta-narratives. I've argued in a recent essay on New Discourses that they can constitute a, the description of a pseudo-reality. They are a, a, a national mythology. Uh, that is attempting to replace the former national mythology, which it has systematically torn down. Postmodernism, as a, as, as Jean-Francois Lyotard put it in The Postmodern Condition in 1979, is an incredulity toward meta-narratives. And so this kind of critical approach that targeted Western democracies, a critical theory approach, which I've talked about a bunch of times, and I may bring up some more here, and then this postmodern incredulity toward meta-narratives have torn down the old story by which Americans knew who they were. And if that were all that happened, or, or to have happened, that would be one thing. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that would be one thing. But what's actually going on now is they're replacing it with a second mythology, their own mythology. They have built their own mythology on the back of saying that we shouldn't build national mythologies. That's an, <laughs> it's a rather curious problem. They have absolutely no shame in this hypocrisy, as many people have noticed, and so shaming them on this point won't work. The reason is because in the paramoral framework that they have within their critical pseudo-reality, their woke pseudo-reality, that doesn't make any sense. It's not shameful. Being hypocritical in that way is not only not shameful, it's expected. And so you can't shame them because their moral framework, their paramoral framework, actually, it's a fake morality, it's not real morals, doesn't acknowledge that as being a problem. As we phrase it, I think, in cynical theories, they are often unrepentantly self-contradictory or inconsistent or something like that. So we are witnessing and especially have been witnessing very clearly over the last five years the attempted creation and mainstreaming of a new american and really throughout the west but american national mythology that says that america was founded in slavery in 1619 there's your 1619 project it was not founded in freedom or with the seeds of freedom at least in 1776 under the uh words of thomas jefferson that the uh all men are created equal. We take these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with uh, certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then to go on to say that we believe that uh, government secures those rights and acts with the consent of the governed. 
This is a totally different picture, by the way, of nations. What happened with America is a nation based on ideas. This is not based on something like the divine right of kings, not based on the fact that some warlord killed everybody. It was based on philosophical ideas that uh, have proven themselves. They were good philosophical ideas, despite these later complaints, despite the shortcomings that come up in any struggle, any society struggling to make its way in a complicated world with a complicated population and a complicated history. These were good ideas. And that's what America was really founded on. But we are watching the wit, we are witnessing the creation of a new mythology that says that America was founded in slavery, in racism, in hate. In 1619, 401 years ago, and that this has just continued throughout history. It has not diminished. It has only changed shapes. And in fact, by changing shapes, it had hidden itself and become more and more insidious. And they, they do. The critical race theorists, by the way, actually do argue that racism has become worse over time. We have the abolition of slavery. We have the end of segregation and Jim Crow. We have the end of all of these abuses. We have tremendous diminution of racism. And yet they argue that racism has become worse because they believe that it is the ordinary state of affairs that has not changed except to hide itself better, which makes it more insidious. And if you read their literature, they say this over and over again. They also locate it primarily in the white progressive, meaning in themselves. So you can see that they're projecting out of their own sense of psychological guilt which is why I referred to this as a psychopathic, or at least rooted in psychopathology uh, ideology. And the essay I published called Psychopathy and the Origins of Totalitarianism, I published on Christmas on New Discourses. So what happened at the Capitol on January 6th of this year while the Congress met to authenticate the electoral college vote and the election, therefore. And as everybody saw, protesters then clearly uh, unlawful rioters started to break into the Capitol, eventually did break into the Capitol, did violence. A woman was shot by police. A police officer appears to have been beaten to death. At least one other person died of a heart attack due to the whatever was going on. In all, I think five people died on the scene. Another man has since killed himself. I believe it was a police officer that did that. So whether how you want to count them, five or six deaths occurred. None of this can really be condoned at all. We Everybody, of course, should be held to account under the law. But this isn't what we're seeing. The word accountability is being really pushed. In fact, it's going way beyond that. And what I want to assert is that this new national mythology that they're trying to foist upon us that begins with America was created in slavery in 1619 has a pivotal moment in which it will actually be mainlined and installed. A pivotal moment in its in its national mythology will be that there was a attempted, maybe Nazi, maybe white supremacist, something of this kind, insurrection and coup, that it was attempted to stop the democratic election in the United States, which has a kernel of truth to it, but is mostly hyperbolic nonsense. And that the forces of good, the true America, was able to defeat those Nazis and white supremacists 
through what we're going to now observe is a very large amount of uh, histrionic media behavior and extraordinarily tyrannical legislation and um, actually corporate uh, I don't even know what to call it, corporate policy. They're banning people from social media. Anybody who has, is too close to Trump or too far off the, the proper narrative, people are referring to it as the great purge already. Okay. We, we could get into all kinds of pretext for why this thing occurred on the 6th. My point is not actually to talk. We can. I mean, it's probably important. But my point is not to talk about the fact that a very large proportion of people on the right in this country believe that there was misfeasance down all the way possibly to the point of election fraud in the election. That's ostensibly what motivated the protests. It was called to stop the steal and stealing the election. It's ostensibly what motivated people to decide to try to break in to stop the authentication of the Electoral College vote at the at Congress uh, at the Capitol. So that that I guess for posterity is necessary pretext to what was going on, why this was happening. Meanwhile, the other side had vigorously not only opposed any such possible narrative from being aired, but actually suppressed it quite vigorously. And that, of course, ramped up the hysteria around it and made it seem more and more plausible that that was the case. Lots of fog of confusion going around this. Perfect kind of place to inject this new narrative. So we've seen a building narrative that America is a fundamentally oppressive country, whether that's racism and white supremacy, as I've been indicating so far, but there's also sexism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, the whole thing, the whole list. We're, we're all familiar with hearing the entire list. All of the different critical theories of identity uh, fascist, as a matter of fact, too. And so the new narrative will pivot upon this act on the 6th of January this year and will assert that a new era in America has arisen in which 401 years of oppression are being put behind us as we turn to a new way of thinking, a new way of life, when finally those oppressive supremacists of whatever type were all defeated in the wake of their attempted insurrection to steal an election that they believed they were stealing back or preventing from being stolen or something. So this is what we're watching. We're watching the creation and installation of a new national mythology. You have to understand how significant that is, and that a very large number of people already believe this mythology very deeply, and that one of the primary effects of the Trump presidency so far, despite any good that it may have done, despite what it represented to the MAGA side, the Trump presidency, one of the biggest effects of it has been to mainline this new national mythology that has culminated to this point of defeating the, the would-be Trump Nazis on January, I guess, 8th when they started dropping the legislations and, and doing the purges, or 9th or whichever day it was, in response to what happened on the 6th. Um, that that's going to be a pivotal moment 
that's going to try to really mainline and make this the the totally hegemonic new view of what America is, was, and will be. And the people who believe this story, the nature of these meta-narratives is that the people who believe this story will believe that this is what the nation is, was, and all about, and it is what they will derive their sense of identity as a person, as a citizen, from, is that story. Whichever story they choose to believe. And they are fundamentally different stories. Um, I said on Twitter about this that it is in every free person's in the world best interest to fight like hell against this new narrative. Because not only is it not true, it is predicated upon things that are going to be tyrannical. It is already enacting blatant tyranny and setting the record straight and making it clear that the revolution in 1776 was a revolution of ideas. Granted, they had to fight a war, but ideally that wouldn't have had to happen. The country was not predicated upon violence. It was not predicated upon slavery. It was not predicated on any of these things. It was predicated upon the ideas of liberty, personal liberty, and the protection of individual rights that are believed to have been endowed by the creator and inalienable. And that we will have governance with the consent of the governed, which is a problem in the present moment because no matter which side you're on, half of the people aren't real down with this whole consent of the govern governed. We just listened for four years to the, most of the left screaming, not my president, about Trump. We're now in a position where most of the right is going to be in most of the same position about Biden. The difference is we tolerated not my president from the left. Granted, we made fun of it a lot um, as a nation, but we see the opposite indication. Trump is being unpersoned. People in Trump's orbit are being unpersoned. Unpersoned, not just given trouble or heckled, rendered unemployable having their social media accounts completely obliterated, having their ability to engage in some financial transactions obliterated, being hounded if they are in the government, Trump supporters within the, the government, Congress, senators, being hounded to resign and pressured to resign. And this will continue and it will escalate as long as it's allowed to escalate based on this new narrative. We're seeing the possibility of unpersoning and and oppressing, legitimately oppressing half of the population in utter intolerance. We could talk about Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance. I don't know how many times I'm going to share it, but this is the basic thesis of it. The basic thesis of repressive, this is what we live in. The basic thesis of repressive tolerance, which Marcuse wrote in 65, right before the riots of 67, 68, and 69, its logic has been unleashed in the world again, by the way. The thesis is that Anything that's going on from the right has to be suppressed. It cannot be tolerated. It must be suppressed, including by violence. And anything that's going on from the left must be tolerated, including if it includes violence. That's a pretty nasty double standard, and that is the fundamental asymmetry that's in the logic of this, that's baked into the logic of this new mythology. And so its masters are going to be cruel. They're going to be biased. They're going to be unfair. They're going to be all of the things that they've said that the world already is, but that they really are in spades. For any kernel of truth that they've had about the cruelties in the world, say, five years ago, 
it's going to be that multiplied by thousands turned back around the other way because that's the logic of repressive tolerance and that's the logic of their movement. So we have these two stories. Was America founded on freedom where rights precede the state and it is the job of the state to secure those rights for individuals and the state governs with the consent of the governed to do it? Or do rights come from the state? Because that's the nature of these two stories. And was this, is, is, is America fundamentally a good nation that was born in struggle and in some hypocrisy and had to work to work its way out of that, including by a tremendously bloody war in the middle of the 19th century to free the slaves? Or is it a fundamentally evil country that's only managed to hide its oppression, its oppressive nature, uh, more and more successfully, whether that's through the abolition of slavery, whether that's through the uh, ending of segregation and Jim Crow whether that's through the obvious reduction of racism, which the other story says we've only just hidden it better. And they claim that the election of Donald Trump was proof of that and that his entire presidency in, emboldened and enabled that, uh, despite there being a small amount, but very little evidence for such a thing, especially in the mainstream, which did not tolerate this. You can even see, by the way, in the, the, evi the, the evidence around the Capitol versus the evidence, uh, the event at the Capitol versus the evidence around the, the riots over the summer. Um, the left cheered the riots on to a far greater degree over the summer, and the right mostly but not wholly condemned what happened at the Capitol. Far too many people supported it. I think actually it's 60% uh, have shown at least some support and 45% think it was thought at first, at least that it was good. I don't know where that number is now, but I've heard a, a strong condemnation um, from all mainstream players on the right, especially as the events have, have unfolded in the next day or two afterwards. And now it's near universal condemnation and shunning of Trump even from most of his most ardent supporters, at least within the government and within the media on the right. And so we have to weigh these two stories and say, which one of these things are we going to allow to define us going forward? Because again, you have to understand this is the establishment of a new American mythology, or in the language of postmodernism, meta-narrative. And it is a dangerous distortion that the left in general, the, um, the critical theorists, the woke, the, the critical race theorists in particular, are trying to push upon us and their friends within the Democratic Party and in these large corporations who they've more or less completely captured are pushing this as well. So they've torn down our old story. They're trying to replace it with this new one. And so I want to... I want to compare them a little bit. I think I've already spoken quite positively about the real American story. I think that the seeds laid in the Declaration of Independence and then strengthened in the Constitution and backed up, most importantly, in the Bill of Rights uh, have been that, I mean, Martin Luther King called them the promissory note um, that eventually had to be cashed in the passage, I suppose, of the Civil Rights Act and in the years since. Um, the, the United States was not perfect when it was created Certainly many of the people writing this thing that all men were created equal held slaves and therefore, at least at the performative level, did not believe what they were writing in full. My 
own belief, having read much of their writing, is that they wanted it to be, maybe they did believe it, but they didn't know how to deal with it. Maybe they didn't believe it. Some did, some didn't. It was a conflicted time. It wasn't perfect when this country was created, and it isn't perfect now, and it hasn't been perfect in between, but it was created on beliefs that are the right ones, that the rights of human beings precede the state, that they don't come from the state, they precede the state, and that they're safeguarded by a state that operates with the consent of the governed. Those were the views, those were the ideals that were appealed to by the abolitionists successfully and ended slavery by the uh, civil rights heroes successfully and ended institutional legal racism by, frankly, even scientists who ended biological racism. And that's the core of Americanism. That's what we are as a country. That's the story of America. And it started, frankly, in 1776 with a number of bold thinkers who wanted to found a nation on an idea rather than on the divine right of kings, which they thought was were corrupt. In particular, George, who George III, they were they were responding to was particularly corrupt, um, and they had quite a bit of invective for him in that Declaration of Independence. This new meta narrative holds something completely different. A new American mythology, if you want, it's totally different. It holds that the United States was evil when it was created, all the way back in 1619, from the first moment Europeans set foot which isn't even correct. It's the first moment that I think British people probably set foot on American soil. And it was fundamentally evil then. It was already a slaveocracy. Historians have disputed this claim. The 1619 Project has very little historical worth. Even its own creators say it's not meant to be history. It's supposed to be a story about history. Okay, fine, it's not true. And this mythology is built off of it anyway. And it holds that the United States was evil when it was created, and that will remain so with that evil, whether it's racism, whether it's sexism and misogyny, whether fascism later, as that evolved. We can talk about that with the dialectic of enlightenment and the way that the critical theorists thought about all of enlightenment rationalism and religion, both always leading to fascism. Um, Oh, they wouldn't have realized that, obviously, in 1619. Uh, that's It holds this ugly view that it's just hidden and thus made all these evils, maintained all these evils while making them more insidious. And so it claims essentially that the nation, the, the United States is, is a, in all of the West, really, are, is a fundamentally evil place. And that will remain the case until the dialectical process of history can overthrow the system and install a new and perfected state that allows liberation through its determination of what people's rights will be. And the name for that project, other than liberation, which you hear, is equity. That's the name of it now, equity. We're going to make up for the sins of history to make things equitable. We're going to level the playing field, which means re-level, re-tilt the playing field in the name of equity. And that will perfect the state. Now, when I said the dialectical process of history, I put that on Twitter too. There's a lot packed in that. The dialectical process of history is an idea that tracks back at least to the uh, German idealist philosopher Hegel 
at the beginning of the 19th century. And I've been talking a lot more about Hegel recently. And Hegel's a very important character because Hegel had a very different a very different understanding of the world. And I don't know if I just said 18th century, but it was, it was 19th century. The phenomenology of spirit was 1807. So the book that's most relevant from Hegel here is in fact, it's hard to say, phenomenology of spirit. Phenomenology of spirit is a very difficult, confusing book. If you haven't, you should read what the uh, kind of contemporary German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer had to say about it, <laughs> about Hegel. Um, it's not complimentary. Um, I think he called Hegel flat-headed and insipid and stupid and a number of other things and said that it, basically everything he ever wrote was a giant heap of trash. Um, nobody's thrown down some philosophical invective like Schopenhauer toward Hegel especially. You should check it out. Uh, but this dialectical process of history, what Hegel believed in a nutshell or what his ideas have been boiled down to is a better way to put it. Um, is that history unfolds and that the ideas of history in each different epoch define how things are. And he referred to, to this as that's where you have this phenomenology, like that, that this thing is happening as a phenomenon and unfolding and you're studying that. And his belief essentially was that you have a dialectical process where the contradictions of the world are revealed and then by finding the resolutions you make progress. This is a very important point. The dialectical process of history, therefore, is one of revealing the contradictions of the fundamental ideas of society and then trying to resolve them in a way that makes progress. The dialectic of history, as Hegel saw it, which he saw as culminating with the uh, self-realization of what he referred to as the absolute or absolute spirit, at which point the eschaton would arrive and the utopia would be at hand in a perfected state would come into being that guaranteed all the rights. In particular, by the way, Hegel was a big fan of the state, uh, capital S state. These ideas were then taken by Marx, and I know everybody tunes out the second you start talking about Marxism, like it can't be that, it isn't that, well, it's not exactly, it kind of is. These ideas were taken by Marx and turned into what he referred to as dialectical materialism. So you hear that dialectic of history. And Marx was a, a kind of big-time historical determinist um, and believed that the process of history would unfold according to a pattern that didn't work out, which is that uh, as, as feudalism would become capitalism and then capitalism would reach a peak state in industrial capitalism and industrial societies, and that those contradictions, the dialectic of capital, the, the contradictions of capitalism itself would become a, over, so overwhelming that the proletariat would realize them, the working class would realize them, and would, want, would understand their oppression in that instant and throw it off and seize the means of production. And suddenly you would be in a state called socialism where the state takes over and eventually and, and owns all the things. And eventually the state would become redundant when you get to that full level of, of um, actualization of the perfected state. And as the state becomes redundant, as it becomes perfected, it would dissolve and the whole state would become a giant commune of self-governance and you would have the communist utopia. So Marx took Hegel's kind of wacky ideas about the dialectical process and its application to the hist to history and as history will unfold, 
which had profoundly religious elements to it that are are distinctly not Judeo-Christian and distinctly not Spinozan if you're kind of into, you know, the God of Spinoza or Spinoza's God view of nature as God. And turn them material. Marx turned them material. And then the later thinkers in like the Frankfurt School, for example, critical theorists like Antonio Gramsci, although lots of people were thinking this by the 19-teens and 20s, were thinking Marx must have got some stuff wrong because the only place that had a revolution was Russia, which was exactly like the last place it should happen. It should happen in these industrial places, not peasant societies. And so they must have something wrong. And so there have been modifications to the idea since and put it back into the realm of culture, and that's it's a whole thing that's irrelevant. Marx is even irrelevant to what I'm talking about. The point is that there's this dialectical process that history undergoes to move toward a perfected state, at which point rights come from that state. So rights come from the perfected state, according to this new worldview, which begins in America, by the way. Its mythology of America is America began in 1619 in slavery and evil, and that will will remain the case until we're able to overthrow the entire system because the dialectic of history has revealed its contradictions to be so profound. And the events at the Capitol are going to be, they are being used as an attempt to pivot on that point that those forces, we have now hit the necessary dialectical revelation. The contradiction of history is now at hand and that fascism can finally be an evil and racism and white supremacy. can We can finally turn to a perfectible state. We can finally turn to whatever the modern descendant of what Marx would have seen as socialism in his six-stage process of history, economic history. And this is that pivotal moment is being characterized as the so-called insurrection at the Capitol. Okay, so just real quick, why should you care about this new mythology? Well, because everybody who understands where these ideas come from, where they've led, every time they've been implemented, it knows that they're a disaster. They do not produce human flourishing. In fact, they're inimical to human flourishing. And they are, in fact, utopian in exactly the way I just described. They don't know how they're going to get from socialism to communism in Marx's language or from whatever's happening with our federal government and tech companies right now to the perfect happy state of equity, which they're sometimes calling super capitalism or that lies on the other side of a great reset or something. So this is what's going on. The the names associated, by the way, with this don't ring um, comfortably in history the same dialectical kind of view was espoused in different ways at different times in different places and different contexts by people like Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Khrushchev, Mao, Pol Pot, lots of others uh, who all have kind of infamous names now, not popular famous ones. That's um, not a good way because it doesn't work. These ideas don't work. It's not their vision. Their vision's great. Their vision's freaking great. Yeah, okay, we're going to get a perfect state. The perfect state's going to be perfect. It's going to give us all our rights. Everybody's going to be equal and everything's going to be fair. 
to each according to their need, from each according to their ability, the whole thing. The problem is, is that it doesn't work. The ideas are actually wrong. Hegel was wrong. Marx was wrong. Lenin was wrong. They're wrong. That's it. They're just wrong. And they're wrong in a bad way. The point actually happens to be whatever flaws the liberal mentality, and I'm talking like John Locke here or Thomas Jefferson with the Declaration of Independence, whatever flaws that approach has, whatever needs to be brought in to patch that or to work with that or to to improve that in the present circumstance where we have the internet, for example, the fundamental operating system that human beings are born free and that they have therefore rights that precede the state that the state needs to safeguard those ideas were actually good and that the state has to operate with the consent of the governed not for the for the people that govern in terms of the greater good that the state determines the state isn't good at that the liberals 200 and some odd years ago, 250 years ago, were right. The Hegelians, 220 years ago and since, while they bring up certain points and have brought certain value to what we've been doing within liberalism, their big big picture project is wrong and dangerously wrong. It never works. Um, teaching kind of a class about the history of critical theory, postmodernism, and, and this kind of leftist thought with I guess my friend Thaddeus Russell right now, who is a postmodernist, he describes himself as a Hegelian, and he said in our first of three lectures that we were doing that as a Hegelian, he recognizes that Hegelian thought leads to either liberation, which I claim is utopian, he and I would disagree on that, and that's okay, or to the worst totalitarianism imaginable, because it's the kind that C.S. Lewis described as believing that it's operating for your own good or one of the kinds that does that. Okay, so what does this new mythology contain other than critical race theory and the 1619 Project and Slavocracy? What is the relevance of Trump? Because this is the political moment we live in. This is what we're experiencing. And I want to tell you, I said for for the last five years, we've had this basically mainlined on us, and we have. We've heard for five years everybody who's somewhere even slightly center-left and to the right of that, called a Nazi, a fascist, a white supremacist, a racist, all of these oppressive words. So if you're center left, like pretty solidly left liberal, you're getting called a Nazi. And Trump has been held up repeatedly as racist, fascist, Nazi, 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 Nazi in chief. The comparisons to Hitler from Trump have just been absolutely off of the charts constant. And literally what I'm claiming has happened is that in this environment where this has been the far left, especially in the media, but also emboldened by these politicians, the far left has been pushing a narrative that sees everybody to their right as Nazis with Trump as like an attempted Nazi dictator. And I will plainly say that Trump gave off some, I think, clear concerning notes. He, he, he praised dictators. He likes strength. He's got dictatorial instincts. He's a CEO, for God's sake. Uh, he talks in a way that is unsettling, especially if you kind of can't understand the way that he talks. And it, it's easy to read that into him. 
And so for five years, they've whipped themselves into a firm belief that they, the left, are the sole resistance against the Nazi regime trying to establish itself. For four or five years, they've said that if he gets power, he won't relinquish it. And then Trump, of course, being how he is, of even if the election were perfectly clean, everybody knows Trump would have thrown up every possible legal challenge because he can't stand losing. If he had, if he lost fair and square, he's going to throw up every possible challenge. He also said from before the election, which people seem to have forgotten, that if he, once he expended his legal challenges, he would concede. This is exactly what happened, by the way, on uh, the seventh. After the 6th and the Electoral College did its vote and they certified Joe Biden as the president-elect, Trump conceded. And then we saw these unhinged speeches still breaking out. Trump literally conceded. He said, our movement hasn't ended, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with a political movement because it's not Nazis, you fools. This is a free country and it's actually not Nazis. He literally conceded and said he would... He expected an orderly transfer of power. He did the thing you're supposed to do. After his, yeah, he said my legal challenges, I expended every legal challenge, and now they're all expended, and I, of course I'm going to transfer power. This is America, blah, blah, blah. The left whipped itself into a frenzy believing that that would not be possible so that even when it happened, they were able to somehow literally read into that that it was the incitement to, or for, to, to further violence. I can't express how disconnected from reality that is. It is a complete fabrication that they've congratulated themselves for and rewarded themselves for and patted themselves on the back for and cheered each other on for, and retweeted each other for, and celebrated each other for, and amplified each other for, and just, it was like the only way they could make sense of something that was a deviation from the extreme status quo that was building towards something that matched their cultural vision. And it wasn't never true. And so, because it was never true, because it's a narrative that they whipped into existence and their own paranoia and hysteria and panic. It's a phantom of their own imaginations. They can defeat it literally by magic. They can defeat it literally just by saying, whoops, we beat it. Everything changed. We did the necessary thing. This thing happened. We passed some laws. We made strong speeches. We installed actual fascism, actual totalitarian uh ideology, we have started to try to destroy our political enemies. We're trying to undo everything of the last four years and punish and hold accountable everybody who was involved. That's freaking scary, by the way. And by that, by that magic, by that alchemy, we have stopped a Nazi takeover that was that close to seizing power in America, which was never, never the case. It was just never the case. But because it was all a fabrication and a narrative, the narrative, just like a plot twist in a story, a novel, can change. If you write a story and the guy's going to the store and then all of a sudden you decide, you know, maybe he's not going to go to the store anymore. Maybe now he's going to go to the bowling alley. Bam. You just write another sentence and he goes somewhere different. Or he goes to the store and the store is on fire. Boom. You just write it down. When it's a story, you can the store turns changed into a unicorn. You can write whatever you want. It doesn't even have to be real. 
the man showed up at the store and then he did a jump kick and defeated Hitler and Nazism never happened. You literally can write whatever you want when it's a when it's a total fiction. And I said this is alchemical for a reason. I've already referred to Hegel. Hegel was an alchemist. Hegel's whole philosophy was predicated on bringing alchemy into the social and philosophical realm. He firmly believed that that's what he was doing. So the ideas upon which this new American mythology, this new meta-narrative for this country, is based, are literally rooted in alchemy. That's making something from, from that which it isn't. Taking something and changing it into something that it isn't. Changing lead into gold. Or changing a anti-establishment outsider president who talks funny and has some uncouth characteristics and a few worrying characteristics into literally Hitler. Alchemy. Alchemy. And like the real alchemists, these people are not creating potions that make them live forever. They're drinking mercury and making themselves mad as hatters. The original proponents of this whole, the the underlying philosophical structure of this entire ideology Hegel, the original was Hegel, said it was alchemy. Schopenhauer called him a freaking sorcerer. I think Popper might have, Popper called him something similar. Literally called him a sorcerer instead of a philosopher because he was willing ideas into existence using clumsy words and and basically the equivalent of magic spells. Uh, Vogelin described his phenomenology as a grimoire, a book of magic spells. So this is, from the very beginning, alchemy. And, well, that's silly. That's 200 years ago, 220 years ago, right? Well, one of its modern-day proponents is George Soros. I know we're not allowed to mention George Soros, but George Soros wrote a book in 1992 called The Alchemy of Finance, in which he wrote a sentence which is something along the lines of that the goal of alchemy, that he says the goal of the scientific method is something like uh, obtaining knowledge or understanding how things work, and the goal of alchemy is is operational success. And he is defending alchemy. He's Hegelian. He's defending alchemy. He says alchemy is the way to go. Alchemy doesn't work. Alchemy's not real. Alchemy will kill you. You're drinking mercury. So the way that this alchemy works, it's all based in narrative. My friend Mike Nana, as many of you will know who Mike Nana is, Mike Nana calls this discourse engineering. It's a really great term for it. They're engineering stories and discourses to say how things work. What's going on is they're, they're engineering a magic narrative, and then they push that mostly into themselves and socially enforce having to believe it and whipping up, giving you carrot and stick both. You don't believe it, you get punished. You get canceled. You get ejected from the matrix. You do believe it, you get awards. You get an Emmy for going up on TV and talking about COVID and killing half the New York City. Like, it's just carrot and stick both there. You create this magic narrative and push it and reward it and punish dissent from it this is what I was talking about with pseudo-reality in that essay, until you fully believe it, until the people who take it on fully believe it, and that anybody who dissents from it is considered crazy. And if you give enough power to that, it can create 
literally a crazy regime, which is where we're at. It distorts little facts here and there. It distorts the truth about this there. It whips up narratives like that Trump's a Nazi and that we have to save the world from him. And you end up with a mythology that's literally, like I said, mad as a hatter. Why are hatters mad? Because they were in something to do with one of the things that they had. I don't know how hats are made, but mercury was involved. And so there's the uh, consumption exposure to mercury. Um, because it's just a narrative that they've engineered into existence, they can engineer the resolution to it in their own aggrandizement. Once they start to get power, once they reach a place where they have access or complete or uh, near complete power, they can suddenly write the next chapter in the narrative so that they defeat the evil that they've whipped into existence. It's alchemy. It's not real. And that's exactly what's going on. I had kind of a rant about this on Twitter. Um, so long as I stay on Twitter, we'll see. And I said, compared to the things that have happened in the past, just, just to take the event at the Capitol, we don't have to talk about the last four or five years. We all have enough PTSD from that. But let's just look at the, the events around the Capitol. They say it's unprecedented. That's not true. There's nothing true about that. The Capitol has been attacked a bunch of times. They're like, it's the most traumatic thing since 1812. Not true. Susan Rosenberg who uh, is on the board of Thousand Currents or was re until recently on the board of Thousand Currents, which handles all the money for Black Lives Matter, set off a bomb in the Capitol in 1983 trying to kill Republican senators. Got pardoned by Bill Clinton. Ends up on the board of Black Lives Matter's financial organization. Black Lives, or sorry, Black Panthers marched on the Capitol in 1967 carrying freaking guns, sometimes I think machine guns. Unprecedented. The place has been set on fire, the place has been, shots have been fired in it, all kinds of crazy stuff has happened. Like 30 some odd times the Capitol has had something unprecedented. So they've whipped that up into a magic narrative. They're like, it was an insurrection and a coup. Well, granted, the people trying to do this did have the intention of stopping what they believed was a stolen vote and therefore changing the uh, result of the election as it was being certified by the Congress. So you can say that's a coup, you can say that's an insurrection, but did you look at it, by the way? It was a bunch of hee-haws. They got in. They were like smoking weed inside. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. Some guy's walking around with a huge grin on his face, carrying a podium. People are literally video. There's video where it's like, what's the plan? They're like, we don't know. We just got in here. It wasn't even like this dramatic like break-in. Like, I don't know what's going on with the police, but the police were kind of letting people in or kind of not letting them in. To call this... A serious attempt at a coup, again, requires the production of a magic narrative. And how much of a coup was it? I mean, they held the same, they held the vote in the same building and a couple hours later. It was a blip. I'm not trying to diminish the lives lost. I'm not trying to diminish the property damage. I'm not trying to diminish the crimes that were committed by people who did things that were illegal and should be held to account by the law. All of that's serious. But to call this an insurrection and a coup as though it was a serious attempt at overthrowing the United States government instead of a bunch of hee-haws is a magic narrative. It's utter nonsense. So the narrative alchemists here 
and mostly in the media, but the Democrats just went full into it, whipped themselves into a frenzy. And within hours, within hours, they were making out that it was the most insane thing that has ever happened since 1812. That's not even close to true. They made out that it was an attempted white supremacist, neo-Nazi or regular Nazi or something, insurrectionist coup. Well, it was a bit uncoordinated for that. Uh, it was not a serious attempt. Not diminishing it, but it was not a serious attempt. Again, the magic narrative doesn't whip things out of whole cloth. You don't make gold out of nothing in alchemy. You make gold out of lead. You take something that's pretty base and you make something extraordinary out of it. There's no reason to change the entire direction of the country. Arrest the people who are involved. Hold them to account the way they should. Hold them to account the way that the people that participated in the Black Lives Matter riots should have been held to account. And still should be held to account. Hold them to account. This is a nation of laws. Change the entire direction of the country. Ram a new Patriot Act down our asses. No. Way too far. And so within hours, things were completely bonkers. Completely bonkers. Nancy Pelosi was going nuts. I'm, the video of her is, is she's clearly not, I mean, granted, I'm sure it was a frightening event for them. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know if they were going to be hurt. I don't want to even diminish that. It would be scary as hell. The crowd was huge. I freaking get it. They've already also whipped themselves into a panic, so they're going to be super scared. I don't don't need to diminish that. But it does bear noting that her laptop got stolen in the break-in. Not very many of those. I think two got stolen. And just hers and one other senator's. And so she's going bonkers. Of course, she would know what's on that laptop. No one else would, but she would. And she's going bonkers saying stuff like that Trump has to be impeached and that he has to have all of his power stripped away and, you know, every 25th Amendment, everything you can imagine to take away his power because he could launch nukes. We're in the middle of something where they're literally talking about incitement and escalation and violence, and he's, she's talking that Trump might start launching nukes. This is absolutely absurd. This is, again, magic narrative. This is turning lead into gold. But really, it's kind of like upside-down world, so the gold is shit. Everything has to be shut down in terms of, we have to have all these new laws. Weirdly, those laws were written before it happened. Cory Bush, this new uh, squad member from, I think, Missouri, had already written the, the new laws before any of this happened. That was weird enough. All these people in the media is just bedwetting. I mean, they're just going bonkers, wetting themselves about what a horrific thing. And you could watch. They're, like, trying to make sense of it, and you can just see the narrative. Like, they're all coalescing until they get a consensus about the narrative. And we're going to come back to consensus before we're done here because I have to talk about the postmodernists. I know this is running long, but we've got this – is, this is insane, and this is a huge thing. And so they're all drinking their freaking Cinnabar. They're all – mad as hatters. They're all drunk on their alchemy. And then the next thing you know, it's all starting to coalesce. And it's like War of 1812. That's a talking point. Trump has nukes. Impeach. Depose. Completely shut him down. Take him out. Make sure boom. Next thing you know, Twitter cancels him. Next thing you know, he's off Facebook. Next thing you know, people around them are vanishing from the social media sites. The walk away group, 500,000 plus people on Facebook. Whole group, gone. Creators accounts, gone. All these were people that walked away from the Democratic Party and talked about the fact that uh, Trump was being misrepresented and what led them to walk away from it. Gone. 
And now you see even more. You know, Parler is supposed to be this this alternative platform to Twitter. Google and Apple remove it from the App Store. Amazon cancels their servers. They can't get new servers. They get basically just shut out of existence because it's primarily used by Trump supporters. This is a hugely disproportionate thing. And then we're talking about these new anti-terrorism acts. We have the uh, person from Michigan elected that's an ex-CIA that's saying that the enemy is no longer, the war on terror, the enemy is no longer external, it's internal. Who do you think that is? It's going to be right-wing people. And it's going to be a really expansive thing, just like the war on terror. So we're going to fight a war on terror against people in our own country now who are not terrorists. They're freaking citizens with opinions. It's dark stuff. Where? Where is it all based? In this freaking mythology that they're trying to install, where remember, for 401 years, we've been a fundamentally evil and racist nation, oppressive. We get to the dialectic of enlightenment, uh, where you get that analysis ever since uh, the 30s, and now we're a fundamentally fascist nation, so long as we're liberal. The Dialectic of Enlightenment, and I get to talk about these philosophers, I didn't do this on Twitter, is a book that was written by Theodore Adorno and Mark, uh, Max Horkheimer in uh, the 1940s. The first edition was 44, they revised it in 47. It opens up with, basically straight up opens up with an argument that the, the I remember that, there's that word by the way, dialectic. Remember I talked about the dialectic of history, here we have the dialectic of enlightenment. The process of understanding enlightenment, and their, their argument was that enlightenment, rationality, Liberal orders and religion all always have the same endpoint, which is fascism. I get that they were looking at the Nazis and like, what the heck just happened in 44 and 47. But to believe, and also seeing Stalin over there, but to believe that the only endpoint of rational thought is fascism is cracked. That's a magic narrative. That's alchemy. And they're talking about the dialectic of enlightenment, alchemy. That is the, the, the mentality that, that we're dealing with. Now, when I talk about this magic narrative, if you recall, I wrote that essay about pseudo-realities, psychopathy and pseudo-realities. I think the psychopathy here, or psychopathology at the very least, is well established. You drink enough alchemical mercury, narrative mercury, and you're nuts. You can't see reality anymore. You act functionally nuts. And we see that around the hysteria. There's two things that are happening around the hysteria around what happened at the Capitol. Because we could just, I mean, throw the book at them if you want. Be lenient if you want. Let's figure out a path and move forward. Throw the book as hard as you want. But to believe that this was this horrific insurrectionist coup that we now have to remake the entire country. And to just watch so many people buy into this. This is narrative alchemy. This is drinking the cinnabar. This is next level. So the psychopathology here, the paranoia, the hysteria are obvious. The other thing that could be going on is that they're just trying to extract every drop of utility that they can out of an event where they've gone so far in trying to do so that they've stretched the bounds of credulity and freaked everybody the hell out. Everybody I know who's not, uh, everybody I know is either scared as hell or scaring me to hell depending on which side they're on. Every single person is either scared as hell or scaring me to hell. That's not a good place to be. And we don't see this being ratcheted down. We see Joe Biden come out unity, right? And he's like, 
saying the same stuff, white supremacists, blah, 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 history of our nation. He's bought full into this mythology, which I tried to warn people about before the election. So I said in that essay that these pseudo-realities have their own broken fake logic, which I called a paralogic. I said in a podcast I talked about this that I derived that term in part from reading the actual postmodernists, in particular Jean-Francois Lyotard. Jean-Francois Lyotard wrote a book in 1979 called The Postmodern Condition. That's the one where he famously says, with the irony that I noted earlier, famously says that he says something like simplifying in the extreme i define postmodern as an incredulity toward meta narrative so we're not going to believe these things in general that's what it means to be postmodern okay and in that he talks he has an entire section in the book that's called legitimation by parology parology is paralogy Change the Y to an IC, and you go from paralogy to paralogic. So it is legitimation in a paralogic. A paralogic is a mimic, a fake, broken logic that lies beside real logic. It looks from within the pseudo-reality like logic. Here's what you've experienced. Here's where you've experienced it. Whether it has to do with critical race theory, whether it has to do with the whatever's going on politically around what I've been talking about, whether it has to do with um, the COVID policy. What you run into is somebody describes the pseudo-reality. America is systemically racist. And you say, what? I don't see it. Explain that. And then they give you some thing. Well, historically, blah, 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 blah. And you get this look in your, that's the paralogic. You get this look in your eye, like, that can't be right. Like, yeah, so 100 years ago we were racist. What does that have to do with anything today? And so that's where they've described, that's their paralogical structure. When they give you these weird explanations, oh, racism is systemic, and what that means is, da, 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 da. when they say that, that critical race theory begins by questioning the liberal order uh, and legal, legal reasoning, equality theory, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law, they're describing all that high-minded nonsense as the paralogical form. That's all the paralogy. Lyotard was scared shitless about the idea of legitimation by parology. Making things true in scare quotes, making things fakely true, truthy, as Stephen Colbert put it, giving them truthiness by means of generating consensus, even though they're not true. And that's exactly what he boils it down to, is that it comes down to generating consensus. So when you have these alchemical narratives and people start believing them and i said you just see this magical thing happen where they all start to like the narrative start it didn't make sense at first and then it congeals on this thing and they just keep repeating it and they keep repeating it and they ratchet it up and they repeat it and they repeat it and it's the same thing 1812 1812 insurrection and they keep using these really charged words that is the legitimation by paralogy. Lyotard wasn't insane. He just went too far with what he was saying and he applied it to things he shouldn't, like science. This is what Lyotard and the postmodernists were warning us about. 
If you read what they wrote as a description and a warning of what can happen in a situation where people can start to run with narratives and that there's nothing to do, their claim is that everything is that. Everything is that. Every possible logic is actually a paralogic. Every possible description of reality is a pseudo-reality. This is, I think, crap. But that's what postmodernism boils down to. He says it's an incredulity to metanarratives. I say postmodern boiled down is the belief that every description of reality is a, is a pseudo-reality. And I don't think that that works. I don't think that that's a fair way to characterize how accurate many of our descriptions of reality must be for us to live in the world that we live in. That said, this is what the postmodernists were warning us about, was the creation of... And if you want to throw QAnon right in there... By the way, QAnon, if you don't know, QAnon's fake. QAnon started as a freaking 4chan troll. It is fake. God. I don't know what's going on with the election and the election fraud question. I didn't say anything about that, but QAnon's nonsense. And I grant you that Trump definitely whipped people into some pseudo-reality, especially a lot of his people. I'm not saying that that didn't happen. He had his own alchemical issues. I've commented on that. I called him the first postmodern president. I had a whole long podcast about that. I told um, Jack Murphy, I went on his podcast earlier in the year. I went. I told Glenn Beck, I went on his podcast over the summer, and they both at different point asked me if I could vote for Trump. Of course, we all know now that I did, but at the times I said, no, I can't. They asked me why I said, because he's in many respects the same problem. He, to put it in the new lingo, I would put, he was also generating pseudo-realities. Trumpism is many things, but the kind of hardcore side of it was definitely generating pseudo-realities. Same things happening, though, with these bedwetters on the left in the media. And they are uh, using, they have a lot more power, and they're sort of tied straight up to all three branches of government now. And the tech sector, which is enforcing their pseudo reality on people, whether they like it or not. And that will probably get less kind and more brutal and capricious as time goes on. Um, they've not demonstrated their ability to be uh, good stewards of their power. Was Trump? I don't know. In ways, definitely. Better than anybody expected in 2016, frankly. Or at least anybody who was skeptical or scared of him. And the fact that nobody can admit that because of this this new this new mythology that completely gets it wrong. Even Arnold's coming out comparing this to Crystal Knocked. And then getting it, like, just completely boneheadedly wrong. Come on, Schwarzenegger. Come on. You know better. This thing is also a pseudo-reality, but it, the difference is that it is super-empowered now. And let me make this really clear. It was very much the case that the left opposed Every real thing Trump did and everything they could invent that he said did and then whatever that didn't even actually happen. Everything that was a result of an alchemical process to whip him into being the Nazi in chief that he wasn't and a fascist and a tyrant and a dictator and all of these things that he turns out he wasn't. So when Lyotard was, was worried about the legitimation by paralogy, 
What he was worried about is exactly what the Democrats and the left media are doing right now. It is exactly what he was worried about with the conspiratorial right to the degree that it is conspiratorial. It was exactly this place where all of a sudden the consensus of people who may or may not be using rigorous methods, but especially when they are not using rigorous methods, become the arbiters of a false reality, legitimation, making it legitimate to believe that which is in that it, that which is described by that paralogical, that fake logic, which props up a pseudo reality. That's what he was worried about. That's what if you're very kind and generous to the positive aspect of what postmodernism was trying to explain and warn us about. That's what you got, and that's where we are. It's kind of funny that I have to defend the freaking postmodernists, me of all people, at this juncture, but their observations about this were in many respects trenchant, accurate, and useful. Um, so to wrap up again, we're at the, we're at, we're, we're witnessing the birth of a new national mythology. This national mythology is not connected to reality in that it does not describe the events of this, the history of our country or what's happening presently in our country or what's happened anywhere in between in an accurate way. And it's not connected to reality in a more important way in the sense that it is based on a philosophical program that gets the nature of freedom exactly backwards. It believes that freedom comes from a state that has been perfected, whereas in reality, freedom precedes the state. Freedom is what we have by virtue of having been born free creatures on this planet, free thinking creatures. If we want to get religious, we could say in imago dei, made in the image of God. Where, by the way, if that is true, if we are made in the image of God, and if you're Spinozan, by the way, as I tend to be in this regard, and you don't believe that there's a creator, there's no a priori reason for inequality whatsoever in the Spinozan view. And so there's also, we're all created as nature made us, and that's good enough. But if we're all made in the image of God, and we'll go with that, because I think that's a valuable concept to hold up regardless. If we're all made in the image of God, all forms of colorblindness are holy, right? Because we're all brothers and sisters in that regard. We're all the same in that regard. And then color would be something that divides us. So all, if we're really made in the image of God, colorblindness as a philosophy is holy. And racism in this neo-racism that operates within this new mythology that's taking over must be evil. They are, in fact, evil. And I think we should fight like hell for the true story of this country and let the true story of this country warts and all be our mythology let's admit that we've hidden the warts and let's look at them but let's not lose the, let's not lose the plot over it let's not flip it upside down over it let's not throw out our freedom for tyranny believing that we're going to get to a perfect perfected state that will guarantee us our rights where every other 
attempt at this in history has gone to the same place, which is millions dead. We got to remember what it means to be American, and we have to stand up and fight for that. And we have to do so honorably, proudly, and with the dignity that comes with being made in the image of God.